Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. What happened to New France during the 60 years between the exploits of Jacques Cartier and the arrival of Samuel de Champlain? Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. The story of New France leads us to 1588. What was going on in Europe? Well, first of all, France was going through a series of civil wars that killed two to four million people. So France was consumed with their own problems. England, too, had a lot of problems. But there was one attempt to make a small colony on an island in the St. Lawrence. It was in 1597, and it was settled by a group of Brownists, a group of separatists, similar to the 1620 Pilgrims. But it failed miserably. And so right there, there was a little blimp on the radar. Oh my goodness, we could have had our pilgrims 23 years before they actually showed up, but didn't happen. The St. Lawrence would increasingly become more and more French, as these trading families along the coast of France would come to dominate the St. Lawrence and push everybody else out, including the Dutch, who would end up making a base of operations on the Hudson, far to the south, which of course would grow to be New Netherland. Laying idle all this time as far as the French government was concerned, France wanted to start a new colonization project of the St. Lawrence or the surrounding areas. But they found it very hard to do so. Men like Roberval and Cartier, they just weren't around anymore. What the French government found was a series of merchants. No single outfit being wealthy enough to front the money to start an entire colony, to feed people for potentially two years, two or three years, erect buildings, and take the loss until a profit was made. Also, these families knew, I'm going to spend all this money to make a static settlement, and then another French operation will just work around me. They'll go further upstream, they'll go further downstream, they'll go further inland, they'll make a treaty with a new tribe or something. They will outcompete me, and I will waste all my resources on one spot. And so the French government really couldn't find a way to formally colonize its possessions, that it claimed to possess anyway. And so the whole of New France was left open to these syndicates of traders that came from France, and particularly from Saint-Malo, Jacques Cartier's hometown. His own extended family would continue trading in the area for decades afterwards, the most notable of which would be the Noel brothers, and particularly Jacques Noel, who by the 1580s was getting up there in age, and his sons had taken over the business, Jean and Michel Noel. Well, round about 1587, the two brothers lost four boats, in a skirmish with another French trading outfit. Jacques Noel back at home thought to himself, wait a minute, I'm Cartier's family. Cartier had rights to all the trading in this area way back in the 1540s. That should be inherited unto me. And King Henri III of France agreed. January 12th, 1588, Jacques Noel and a business partner by the last name of La Genet were granted a monopoly over all the trading in the St. Lawrence, or what they would have called New France as an extension of the rights that were granted to Cartier way back in 1540. There seems to have been some provision to start a permanent colony, which is ultimately what France wanted. They wanted to extend their domains with settlements that could be affordably obtained anyway. So they were allowed to take 60 prisoners a year to New France to begin the formal inhabitation of New France by French people. But this appears to never have happened for two reasons. One reason, Jacques Noel himself, several years before, just like his uncle, Jacques Cartier, climbed Mount Royal and looked around and saw nothing of value to him. Ultimately, they wanted to find a passage westward to get to Asia. None could be found. And so three years later, when he's granted the rights to a monopoly under the stipulation that he would form some sort of a permanent settlement, he didn't really take that provision seriously. 
But also, the other traders in Saint-Malo, they didn't take Jacques seriously. During the same exact year that he received his monopoly, the bourgeoisie of Saint-Malo threw themselves in front of the king, and they said that Jacques Noel, although he's related to Jacques Cartier, has no more rights to the area or the fur trade or any other trade than anybody else who's been trading in that area, and that the people of Saint-Malo have been traveling there for some time. And furthermore, his business partner, Le Genet, has no even familial relation to this monopoly at all, to these benefits. And so the king, that very same year, revoked Jacques Noel's monopoly. And everything again was cast back into the conspiracy of silence. If you read your traditional history books, it mentions Cartier, then there's an 80-year gap or so, then you learn about Samuel de Champlain, and they act like nothing happened. Cartier was long gone, but the cod fisheries that were hidden off the coast of North America... The same families that participated in all the fisheries, several generations removed, were now getting involved in the fur trade, as fur became more and more expensive and more lucrative compared to fish. This entire phenomenon of basically not knowing what all these Europeans were doing, despite them being there, is called a conspiracy of silence. Again, it started with the fisheries, and then it extended two, three, four generations later into fish and fur. Essentially, private traders had been canoodling all up and down the coast of North America, all without telling anyone. It all stayed within their family, within their business, within their village. And in fact, evidence of this is the traders along the St. Lawrence from the 1550s all the way up until we have Samuel de Champlain and formal record keeping. A lot of them were from Saint-Malo, the exact same port town that Jacques Cartier came from. So far from thinking that the story just ended with Donacona and Cartier and Roberval, it just kept going. But nobody was writing about it because people were making money. And if you know there's a place you can go and make some money, but there's only a certain supply, you're not going to tell anybody about it. And so from the 1540s all the way to 1600, we have the conspiracy of silence. While there weren't colonies in the sense that you or I would think of them, these fishermen and fur traders would set up summer colonies. They would construct shacks, and when the weather was good, have these small little dwellings, small little villages that would crop up suddenly during the warm seasons, and then suddenly go empty when it was time to go back to Europe and to a far fairer winter. And we have almost no stories about this period of time, except records back in France and the Netherlands and England and other places mentioning supplies to be sent out, supplies received, and that's about it. The stories of those men, the adventures, the wars, the battles, the drama, the relationships... Who knows? It's a huge mystery. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, geez, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And then we had John Cabot, and we had Verrazano, and we had Cartier, and we had all these other people within a 30-year period, and now suddenly we have half a century of just nothing, of mystery, a conspiracy of silence. And so in the 1590s, New France was plunged back into hearsay. We have no idea what happened, just little snippets. So you might say to yourself, well, maybe nothing interesting happened. Well, here's one little bit we get from an English trader. English Captain George Drake, in 1593, he came upon a small island in the St. Lawrence. He writes that these islands were full of Bretons, not Britons, Bretons, from Brittany and France, primarily those from Saint-Malo. No surprise there. He tried to make a base of operations on one of these tiny islands tucked away, but he was quickly found out and he was forced out of his settlement by 200 Frenchmen and 300 natives. What is the story there? How do you have a 500-man-strong army in the middle of the St. Lawrence in the 1590s? And who's in charge? Who's funding this? What tribes were involved? What were their treaties with one another? These are the stories that are buried deep in time and may be lost to us forever. But lucky for you, the listener, we are now exiting the mystery period and entering a period where we have far more documentation and we have stories to tell and not all of them are going to end pleasantly. 
Shortly before the year 1600, we see one of these mysterious characters come forward in the historical record. Grave Dupont. Dupont had been in the St. Lawrence trading for at least 20 years. He was a bit over the hill, but that came with a world of experience that only those in the conspiracy had. And so Dupont proposed to a wealthy merchant who had also operated in the area named Pierre Chauvin to form a permanent colony at Tudesec. This way, while the natives have a monopoly there, they would have a permanent base there and would be able to trade any time of year, and then from their permanent base, be able to push out all the other traders. And so creating a monopoly and a monosopy. So the natives would have a control on the supply, and the French would have control on the demand. The king gave Pierre de Chauvin a 10-year monopoly, starting in the year 1600. Dupont and Chauvin, they made an arrangement with the Innu to settle at Todesic. And they were very happy with this arrangement because they had promised to the Innu metallic weapons, weapons made out of metal, in order to take on the Iroquois to the south. Now, we're not talking about guns, but we are talking about blades and other sorts of implements of destruction. And so the Innu were pleased that the French were settling at Tadoussac. I like these kinds of stories because it highlights that it wasn't always about Europeans moving in, not asking permission, taking over native lands. Sometimes the natives, or often actually, the natives wanted these first groups of Europeans to settle among them, provide them with goods nobody else could get. In the first year of the colony's existence, it mostly floundered, and by the time it was getting cold, most of the people wanted to leave. I imagine these were sailors and traders who worked in the area previously, and they were used to leaving in the wintertime, because as we all know, winter on the St. Lawrence is a bit more harsh than it is back in France. And so 16 remained over the winter of 1600 into 1601, and only five lived in the entire colony. And it's recorded that they only lived because of the goodwill of the Innu, who took those five in to make sure they survived into the spring. As you can imagine, this was terrible news for Pierre de Chauvin. He was never going to create a functional colony if two-thirds or more of the colony either leaves in the winter or just flat-out dies over the winter, probably from scurvy. And then to make things even worse, it was discovered that, coinciding with him getting these certain rights to New France and trying to start his own little colony, there was another guy who had an older claim by the last name Laroche to the same exact areas, the same sort of privileges, and that the two titles were overlapping. And so Pierre de Chauvin was actually made the Lieutenant General of New France. And so the man who's been missing from this story the entire time is, on paper anyway, the Viceroy of New France. There's a man out there, Laroche, who's technically been the Viceroy of New France since 1578. It's been a quarter century. Where has this guy been? This will require us traveling from the St. Lawrence to 100 miles off the coast of Nova Scotia to a little tiny island or so-called island called Sable Island. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.